Um, if you need a house Bible, you can raise your hand, and we'll have someone in the back bring it to you. Uh, again, it's, uh, we'll be in Acts 19, and it's found on page 541. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who there, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. He may be seated. All right. Good morning. Be honest, who, who had no idea that the time changed today? Everybody's aware? Okay. <laughs> I woke up and I was like, what in the heck? Why am I so tired? And then I looked at my uh, stove, and I was like, oh, there you go. Um, Good morning. My name's Josiah. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, It's my joy to bring God's word to you guys today. And uh, Ryan is, Pastor Ryan, he is with his family this week. 
Uh, his father's funeral was yesterday, and so he's going to be taking a little time off, just so you guys know. Uh, he called me this past week and and uh, asked for permission, I guess. Uh, he's like, hey, can I, can I take time, man? I need time. And I was like, dude, absolutely. Uh, you don't have to ask for that. So, um, But he's going to take a, a few weeks here. Next week he goes on vacation, um, and so... Uh, next week, hopefully, we'll have Joel um, from Cross Point Coast with us. Then um, I'll be back up here uh, preaching the following week, and then uh, we'll play it by ear for the next week. So, I was, uh, just keep him in your prayers. He he just wanted me to tell you he uh, he sends his love, he sends his gratitude, all the prayers you guys have been um, and support you guys have been sending to him and his family. But he uh, continues to need it, needs the support. He's got a lot to deal with um, right now with uh, with family affairs. So. Um, so we're going to jump into the, today's passage, and um, a lot has happened since where we left off last week in chapter 17, so now we're two chapters later, um, about three years since Athens, actually, and uh, Paul has traveled thousands of miles, spreading the gospel wherever he's gone, and now he's back in Ephesus, um, uh, and uh, this is a city in Asia Minor, and is actually where he spends uh, uh, one of the places he spends the most time in all of his journeys, beginning his third missionary journey here. And he spends about three years here in Ephesus. And during this time, uh, the passage—not uh, our passage—we read, but right before in chapter 19, um, it tells us that God was doing extraordinary things through the hands of Paul. Should I change microphones, guys? He, all right. Mike is going to grab me another mic. If we have to do a wired one too, it's fine, but whatever. Um, but God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Um, incredible things. I mean, even things like a handkerchief that touched Paul, um, they would take and they'd bring it to the sick and to the demon-possessed, and, the, and they were healed miraculously by that. And so amazing things that no one could put explanation to except for God was moving in and through this man through that time. The Bible tells us that fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. And the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This one on. The word continued to increase and prevail mightily. And that's where we pick up here. After these events... Okay, that's what we read. After these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit. Um, there's three points I want to bring forward today through this text. And the first is, it takes a personal resolve to carry the mission of Jesus. Two, there will always be adversaries to the gospel. And three, all adversaries of the gospel have been defeated by Jesus. First one, it takes a personal resolve to carry the mission of Jesus. It takes a personal resolve to carry the mission of Jesus. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to use this text just kind of as a, a springboard into this first point while we allow Acts 19 to kind of uh, give us our context. But 1 Peter 4, 1 through 4. And as you get there... We'll read, and I'm actually going to read a translation from the from Horton's Christian Standard Bible, and it says this: "Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve, because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will." 
For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the pagans choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. So they are surprised that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. The Bible warns us, church, that there, are simply, there just simply isn't enough time in this life that we have to waste it on things that are, in the end, temporal anyways, right? There just simply isn't enough time to waste on things that are temporal anyways. Yesterday, at Dale's funeral, Ryan's father, um, they, uh, uh, you know, funerals are interesting because God, God uses them to speak to us somehow, you know, even, even in tragedy, and anyone who, a, who is doing a eulogy, anyone who, is a, um, who has faith in Christ and understands the gospel um, knows that there's a great opportunity uh, given there where um, many are gathered together, you know, both of the faith and not of the faith. And, um, and so Ryan knows, Ryan knew that, he knew that the opportunity, and he did a great job with this eulogy, and probably one of the best del- delivering of the gospel I've ever heard him give, um, and God worked mightily through him. And there's two things I, I walked away from the funeral yesterday with, and um, the first one is uh, an understanding that Ryan loves his father deeply, loves his father deeply, and the second thing is that um, I was reminded that man's days are numbered, man's days are numbered, this we just don't have the time that we, we think we have in this life. And the Christian singular focus in life, and I want to propose this to church, is that um, the singular focus should be this, the glory of God. Our singular focus in life should be the glory of God. Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, you may be familiar with this, but it begins with this. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. That's our chief end. Nothing higher, nothing more supreme than our calling here on earth. What is our chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Do you have a resolve to bring God glory in your life? Do you have a commitment, a resolve in all areas of your life to bring God glory? If you do, then... You know, the momentary decisions that we have to make, like, where am I going to go to school? Where, how am I going to get a job? Where am I going to get a job? How am I going to provide for my family? Where am I going to live? All these things find their order underneath giving God glory. When we set our mind in a singular way towards, I'm going to give God glory in every area of my life, then everything else finds its order and finds its place Underneath that, you know, Paul, um, he did not travel 10,000 miles by foot alone. 10,000 miles, but just, just on his feet, not including the time he sailed. Write 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, effectively evangelizing most of um, the Mediterranean. All in his 40s and 50s, by the way. He did not do this just by chance, Right? No, he resolved to do so. And what does the passage tell us in, in the first verse? Paul resolved in the what? The spirit. He resolved in the spirit. There was a personal resolve that Paul had. A decision, a commitment that he made. But it was not detached from his highest resolve of all. The glory of God. And he believed that 
or he knew and he understood that he could not give God glory apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so he would walk in the Spirit and he would talk with the Spirit of God and he would make decisions with the Spirit of God. And he decided that this is the way I'm going to go and so I'm going to resolve to go this way. I'm going to continue on to Macedonia. And I'm going to leave Ephesus, even though the ministry is good here. But I don't believe that, um, you know, this is something that Paul just kind of in, inherently had. He had to learn how to do this. You know, from the time of Paul's conversion there was, until his first missionary journey, it was 12 years. Did you guys know that? Like, I think often we think, like, you know, Paul, like, he was blinded and then, and then you know, healed back to society, you know, came to Christ and... And then he just kind of went out and just started preaching the gospel. It was 12 years until his first missionary journey. Now, he did serve in the church and he preached in the synagogue ongoingly through those 12 years. But in that time, he learned how to listen to the Holy Spirit. He learned how to make, have a resolve to give God glory. He had to learn what, what does it mean to commit myself to this mission that Christ is calling me. What does it mean to follow Christ? I mean, Christ is calling me to follow him, but what does that mean? He had to commit himself to learning that and through a process. And so Paul was a very disciplined person. We can learn about that in, in the epistles and the letters he wrote. Um, and like Paul, uh, Jonathan Edwards, a, a Puritan pastor from the 1700s, he was also tremendously disciplined. And I, I listened to this um, audio book this week that Micah recommended me. Um, and uh, I believe it was called the... Um, Unwavering, thank you, that's the word. Unwavering resolve of Jonathan Edwards. And, uh, and so if, if you're not familiar with um, any of Jonathan Edwards' work, he, he, did, he, had, he wrote out 70 resolutions in his life. He, he wrote them out, and a majority of them were written in his late teens, like 18 and 19 years of age. And he made a commitment in those resolutions to read through them weekly, every single one of them. And he did this through... Um, the entirety of his life. He did this all the way through his life. And these were resolutions that were very practical, like you know, um, his eating and drinking habits, to his, his waking and his sleeping, to his um, loving others, to reading the Bible, to you know, spiritual disciplines, and um, evangelizing, everything. He did this through the entirety of his life. And the thing that I took away from that book, I think the most was this, that not being a disciplined person is not an excuse for not being a disciplined person. You follow? Like, uh, you know, none of us are inherently disciplined. You know, not, none of us are like, you know, just have this uh, um, really good edge, you know, to be disciplined. Well, maybe it's easier for some than others because we like order and we like structure and stuff like that, but none of us are disciplined from birth. We have to learn discipline. That's what, you know, discipline means when your parents discipline you, right? And so when we become adults, there's no one really disciplining us any longer. And so we have to learn how to discipline our bodies. We have to learn how to uh, commit ourselves to doing the right thing. Paul understood this. Jonathan Edwards understood this. And, and, uh, and we ought to understand this. Yes, Paul, he, he had a sharp mind. He had a really... Um, astute way with the scriptures. He understood them. He could debate with the greatest of philosophers at the time. But what made Paul the most effective in his ministry was not his sharp intellect, but his commitment to the gospel. 
and his love for Jesus. It was his deep commitment to the gospel and his deep abiding love for Jesus. Read with me um, 1 Corinthians 9. Again, if you would turn there. And hear what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians 9, starting verse 22. To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself myself should be disqualified. Point number two, there will always be adversaries to the gospel. There will always be adversaries to the gospel. Ultimately, these are adversaries, you know, toward the gospel. We should understand that. That if you decide to follow Christ and to carry out his mission here on earth, to carry his gospel forward, then you will be confronted by these adversaries. And Jesus doesn't pull any punches on this, right, in the gospels. I mean, he makes it clear. I mean, you, you will not receive, you know, fame and fortune, but people will hate you. People will despise you. You might lose everything, but I'll be with you. To the end of the age. I'll be with you. There are two types of adversaries that I like to talk about you know, today. And, um, the first one is oppositions. Oppositions. To the, our Western culture um, values balance and moderation. You know, just having appropriate balance and appropriate moderation and things. But Paul was radical and extreme. I mean, um, David Saket, he's an actor, and he, uh, he, he claims to be a Christian. I don't know him personally, so I can't um, you know, make a remark there. But he, he loves Paul, and he loved um, studying Paul. And so he actually tried to take all of his journeys you know, through the Mediterranean. And, um, and he wrote this in a BBC interview. He said, given Paul's temperament, his extreme views, and his single-mindedness of purpose... I am not sure I would like I would have liked him or would have want to spend much time in his presence. And you know, you think about Jonathan Edwards, and um, also learn that he kind of had a similar temperament about him, and he didn't have many friends, and um, you know, probably not just one of the, the cool guys that you want to hang out with, basically. You know, uh, kind of annoyed people because of his kind of radical nature about him. But isn't it funny, like, like, those are things we don't value, like, right? Like, we, we value moderation and just balance, and uh, that's somebody I want to hang out with, somebody that's just kind of cool and level-headed, right? Um, but this kind of radical nature, that's something that we don't value as a culture. But this is how Paul was, and this is how Jonathan Edward was, and... 
And God used them mightily in their lives. I see it really often in church in my own life where we, we play a safe hand with those who, who don't follow Jesus. Uh, we play it safe, and maybe it's because we want to be more accepted. And I think it's a genuine um, intention. But here's what I think we need to understand. like The consequences of just playing it safe in order to just kind of be accepted by culture is devastating and severe. If we try to live a life to a standard that is accepted by the world and not biblical standard, then we only widen the divide between the world and the gospel. Any attempt of us to make Christianity more palatable to the world makes the gospel more worthless to the world. Why do I need the gospel when, it, when, it, when I'm already doing everything that you do? If it doesn't change any of my behaviors, then why do I need the gospel? It's worthless to me. But the gospel calls us out of the world. It calls us to a different way to live. It calls us to live radically opposed to the world. And as Paul tells us not to, he says not to come out of the world. He says to be in the world, but not of it, right? To have our minds transformed by the power of the gospel. To think about whatever we do in the world differently. That we, we might do some of the same things, but we do them differently and we, for different purposes. Church, you don't have to fear opposition. You don't have to fear opposition. To fear what people think of you. You don't have to fear being rejected because God is for you. You don't have to fear being mistreated. Because in that, Jesus tells us that you're blessed. When they mistreat you and they malign you, you're blessed. Paul experienced opposition that deterred him from leaving Ephesus. And he, it's believed that here in his preparation to leave that he wrote 1 Corinthians. And the passage that kind of alludes to this is 1 Corinthians um, 16. 16, and he... Paul is saying, Church, um, Corinth, I hope to go to you. I'm going to be going to Macedonia, but I hope to pass through. And I hope I'm, I get to see you, not for a short time, but for a long time. I hope to be with you so you can encourage me. And that you can, um, I know I'm going to benefit from your presence. But he says, I, I can't go now. I have to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. But I'm sending Timothy forward so we can see that here in Acts. The same, same thing he's uh, describing. But he adds this. He says, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. A wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so, Pollux is experiencing this opposition, but in his opposition, opportunity came. It's in your opposition that you face, church, like God opens wide doors for effective ministry. He opens doors for you, for ministry to happen, for him to work through you. Do not fear opposition. Do not run from opposition. But know that in that opposition, God will use you for effective work. Second type of adversary is a distraction. 
You know, oppositions are kind of more obvious and like an outward adversary to the gospel. But there's another one that's more um, inconspicuous, and, and that's distractions in life. Distractions. Most people understand that life has brevity, right? It's, it's short. At least in part we understand this. And we, we try to live our life to the fullest with the time that we have. But ask yourself this. What eternal impact are these things having for the kingdom? The things that I do, what eternal impact are these things having for the kingdom of God? Jonathan Edwards, one of his uh, resolutions was this. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Never to do anything if I would be afraid to do it in, in the last hour of my life. There are good things in this world, church. Good things that the Christian should refuse to partake in for no other reason than to just free him or her to a greater thing, to giving God more glory. You know, uh, Steve Jobs, he, uh, in, when, uh, before he passed, he, he was in an interview and he, and he said this. He said, people think focus means saying yes to the thing you've got to focus on. But that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that are there. Man, what an altering perspective, I think. You know, for, so for Steve Jobs, he understood success like this. He, he had an incredible idea, and he was going to pursue that idea. But it didn't mean just focusing on that idea and trying really, really hard to focus on that great idea. No, it meant actively refusing all the other good ideas that could come in and kind of convolute this great idea. He he understood that it was actively working against all these other good things so that he could stay singular and focused on this great idea. And for the Christian, it's much the same. It's, It's much the same. That when we decide to give God all the glory, we live all of our life for Him. You know, um, I think a lot of times we'll say it like this. We, we just try to say, I just need to pray harder. I just need to read my Bible more. I just need to evangelize more. I just need to do this and this. And if I could just do these things, I know if I just work harder at them, then I'll do better at them. Instead of actively saying no to all the things that creep in and inhibit us from actually doing those things. If we were actually to take a resolve like Jonathan Edwards and say, I will never do anything that I'd be afraid to do if I had one hour left in my life. If we were actually, think about it, if we refused those things that we might be afraid to do in the last hour of our life, how much time would we actually have to do the things that we know we ought to do? A lot of time. A lot of time. There, And I don't remember who, um, who coined this, but um, I think it was Robert Weber couldn't find it in preparation, but he said, Worship is not only towards God, but it is against all other gods. Our worship is not, when we, when we when decide to follow after God, we have to remember that at the very same time, we're refusing all other gods. It's an active motion to say, I refuse you, I refuse you, in order to follow you. And so, there are good things, I'll repeat it, there are good things in this world 
that the Christian ought to refuse in order to free him or herself to do the greater thing. 15 minutes. It was inevitable that sooner or later the king, the authority of Jesus, would challenge Artemis' sway over the people. It was inevitable. Demetrius, the silversmith, knew that the Christians didn't spend their money the way everyone else did. Let me give some context here. So, um, Demetrius was a silversmith in Ephesus, um, and he made these little shrines for this temple. And this temple was, um, I think we have a picture of it. Do we have a picture of there, Ryan? So this is the temple um, of Artemis. And this thing was twice the size of the Parthenon. Um, nowadays, there's only one pillar left because it was destroyed twice. Um, but it was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this thing was huge. Um, so Ephesus being an ancient Greek city, had a lot of Greek gods. Artemis was one of them. Uh, goddess of um, either hunting and gathering or fertility, depending on who you ask. I don't really understand it. Um, but she was a goddess there and, and worshipped reverently. And so Demetrius was a silversmith who made his money off of um, this temple, basically. And how he did that was because people flocked to come see this thing. Much like, you know, if you go to D.C. and you get the Washington Monument and uh, the Lincoln Memorial and stuff, you know, and everyone comes to see it. And then you can buy little trinkets afterwards or something of like, you know, a, um, a little model of it. A um, little keychain or something, I don't know. But in much in the same way, Demetrius made his money off of that by selling these shrines to people who came to the temple. And so he understood full well... He understood that Paul had been um, converting people from worshiping these gods and worshiping the true God, as he claimed. And so not only did he not worship Artemis, but he also understood and heard the word that, man, these Christians don't, they don't use their money the way that the, everyone else uses their money. I mean, they don't buy pricey, worthless artifacts but no, they actually sold their possessions and they gave freely. They leveraged their assets, not for personal gain, but for the advancement of the gospel. So let, let me pause here just for a quick heart audit. And if you had allowed me to just kind of draw this out a little bit um, and um, maybe, maybe, maybe reach a little bit here with some application, because I believe that God really wanted... Um, me to say this and um, um, uh, this morning, so uh, some moment of honesty, man. There's uh, there's a lot in my heart that God has been doing and showing me regarding how I spend my money, how I um, how I make the most of what He's given me to be a good steward of, and it's caused me to ask this question, um, man. Do my spending habits look any different than the world's? My, the, way, the way I use my money, the what I spend my money on, does it look any different than the world's habits? And I've had to look at my heart and look at my um, habits and, and say, no, in the vast majority, no. Like I spend my money on the same things that the, the world spends 
its money on. And um, and Ryan and I have found ourselves um, in just an incredible amount of debt recently because of that. I've shared this a couple years ago when I preached, and um, and to be honest, nothing's really changed. We just keep finding ourselves in this deeper hole, in this deeper pit of, and it's not um, it's not like anything outlandish that we're purchasing. You know, but it's just a continual habit of just buying stuff, little things. And we find ourselves in this place of debt, and, I'm, and I look back, and I'm like, God, like, how do we find ourselves here? How do we find ourselves in this hole? And, and a lot of interest, uh, prayer and, um, you know, um, looking inward, I see, like, man, like, my habits are not in a way that God would approve of. And I don't say all this to kind of be you know, self-deprecating or, or anything like that. I, um, I believe that, first and foremost, that in Christ there's no more condemnation. I, I don't have to hide from this. Um, and so Ryan and I are, um, you know, been talking to people in our community group more and actively asking for prayer and for, um, um, uh, you know, commit, commitment to, to help us and support us in this. Um, and, uh, and secondly, I believe that as John tells us that if we walk in the light, then we do have fellowship with one another. You know? And so I ask you the same thing. You know, do, do your habits, do your spending habits look any different than the world's? You know, are you obsessed with the hottest brands, the latest fads, the newest edition of something? I don't know. Like those things don't necessarily, um, you know, grab my attention. But maybe, you know, you're like me and you just, you just like, you know, like you like things. You like to be able to, to have things because, you know, it brings a level of comfort. What do your habits look like? What do you, what does your heart gravitate towards to bring you comfort, to bring you joy in life? For the church here, again, Demetrius knew, he knew by word, like, Christians, they don't, they don't spend their money like this. And that was a problem for him. He's going to lose money. It was bad for business. And so what he do? He, he stirred up the crowd. He gathered everybody together. He got all the other silversmiths, and they, they grabbed um, two of Paul's disciples, um, Gaius and, I don't know the other guy's name, Aristarchus. There it is. Aristarchus, and they grabbed them, and they brought them into um, the city courts, and, they, and they, they just started, like, gathering around, and just a bunch of chaos and because he knew, man, like, we got to do something about these Christians. Man, what, what would it be like, man, if, like, the church just kind of stopped buying a bunch of frivolous and stupid stuff? I don't know. That was a side tangent. Just thinking about it. Here's the deal. Most of us can relate with Paul and Demetrius. Um, as the two of them kind of illustrate uh, an inner conflict that we have in our lives. And that is this, we, we desire to do whatever, go wherever Christ asks us, but we must make a living. Right? God, I want to go wherever you send me. I'll do whatever you tell me to do, but I got I to take care of my family. I got I to take care of me. You know, what happens when the call of Christ conflicts with your business demands? Clients, profits, bills, employees, they can all be harsh taskmasters on us. And we often feel debilitated in our great commissioning because of our other responsibilities in life. I mean, what makes men and women sacrifice so much, sell their possessions, move to somewhere that hasn't heard of the name of Jesus, 
to bring their family to the slums of another country in order to serve the least of these. To take in an orphan, to open their home to a place for the work of ministry. To stick it out in a body of believers even when there's conflict. To sacrifice their money and their time faithfully meeting with others. To mentor people, to challenge people, to encourage people. What makes people live their life in such a way? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the reason people do that. That people have seen Jesus in all his glory and said, Jesus, you're worth following. You're worth it. I'll lose everything for your name, Jesus. I want to follow after you. That's how Paul was so resolute. And Jesus just took him out and said, Paul, you're mine. You're mine. And he said, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Wherever you go. Here's the deal. Last point. All adversaries have already been defeated by Jesus. This passage ends sort of anticlimactic, you know, doesn't it? I mean, kind of this all this chaos and this um, everything's going on around and like no one, some people don't even know why they're there, the, the Bible tells us. Like they're just like, I don't know, we're just shouting, yelling and something's happening. You know, why are you here? I don't know. Somebody dragged me over. But, and then it kind of just ends. It's dismissed. And there's some disunity um, on this, but a lot of people believe Second Corinthians 1 um, was written in reference to the, this event. And so um, I'm going to read that. If you want to turn there, we're going to end in this passage, 2 Corinthians 1. And here's what Paul says to the, the Corinthian church again. He said, and I believe relating to this event here in Ephesus, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Here, pause here. God will sometimes allow things to happen in our lives, or maybe not happen in our lives. And it feels like he's pronounced a death sentence over us. But here's what Paul says. Listen to what he says next. But that was to make us rely, not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. So Paul, in his inner struggle, wanting so desperately, feeling like, God, you've, you've called me to go to Macedonia again, and yet I can't leave. He, he even wants to get to his friends that are that have kind of held hostage by this mob, and he can't even get to them. His friends are holding him back. God will sometimes not allow things to happen because he's teaching us to rely upon him. Later in this letter, in 2 Corinthians, Paul goes on to say that our sufficiency is not in ourselves. Our sufficiency comes from God. He's made us competent. That God did this, not anything else. It's God without anything else. He's made us competent. And God allowed this to happen so that we'd learn to trust Him. And then again, later on, even further in 2 Corinthians, he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Since we have this hope, church, we are very bold. And then finishing this passage in verse 11, He delivered us, He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us. 
On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. In the midst of this confusion, Paul is trying to get to the crowd. His friends are holding him back. And then they, they put up this, the Jews put up um, this guy, Alexander, and he doesn't do anything. He just, like, everyone just gets even more mad, right? Just stirs up the crowd even more. And I'm sure all of this was just terribly frightening for all the disciples. And based upon this passage, he says, man, we would just fear for our life. We thought we were going to die. You know, from inside it, everything just looked like just chaos and like everything was going to end. This is the end of the world. But from an outsider's perspective, looking at this, we know like what happened. It's like, hey guys, like it's all good. Like God took care of you. Like, can't you see? Like, you're fine, right? Isn't that just the case sometimes? We're in the, the middle of opposition. That man, it just seems like everything's just done. Like my life is over. But God has us. He's got us in the grip of his hands, and he won't let go. Ernst Heinken, he's a German uh, commentator, he said this on this passage. He said, in final analysis, the only thing heathenism can do against Paul is to shout itself hoarse. The only thing, the world can't touch you, church. Don't be fearful. Don't walk in fear. Walk in boldness. The world can do nothing to you. What can they do? Kill you? But Paul said, to die is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And I'll be with my Jesus. So what? Take my flesh. Take all that I got. Take everything. What can you do to me? God's got me. Consider this too. When you resolve to put God's glory first, He will open wide doors for effective work in His kingdom to be done. As much as we've talked about Paul today, this passage really isn't even about Paul, is it? I mean, he's kind of just a bystander in this whole passage. And frustrated, he couldn't get to his friends, feeling helpless about the crowd. Yet, because of his resolve to pursue God, God and trust him in the process God made a way out. I mean, what caused the clerk in the end to even dismiss everybody? Like, what caused them to say the things he did? We'd have really no explanation of why the clerk stood up and said what he did and dismissed everybody. Could it be the Holy Spirit? Could it be the Spirit of God was actually working? God was actually doing something in the midst of all this chaos? Could that actually be the case? Yes, of course. We don't need explanations of why things might happen. And so church, just going back to 1 Peter, I'll read this again to you in closing. If I could find it, there it is. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve. Christ went before you. He suffered everything for you. He left nothing on the table. He emptied himself. He looked at the cross. He knew the way of suffering. He walked it. He did not turn to the left or to the right, but he walked it straight forward. Enduring the cross, enduring the shame, he went to death, even death upon a cross. He did not count himself equal to God, but he emptied himself of all of this. 
emptying himself and becoming like man. Jesus, we want to follow after you. We want to walk this road the way you did. A road of suffering, but yet a road of joy. It was the joy that was set before you that you endured these things. You knew it was suffering throughout. The road would be suffering, but it was the joy that was set before you. And so we remember that Christ, you are our joy. You are eternal security. You are the one that we are looking forward to seeing one day face to face. That the temporal things of this world will not have a hold upon our lives. But Lord, would you come and remove them, release the grip of the things that hold tightly, so tightly to our hearts. And may we be just spent for your glory. Receive glory in and through your church. We pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing this song now the band's going to lead us in. And the chorus says this very simply. Make me a vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing except all you've given me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. Bring new wine out of me. We remember that wine is kind of a, it's a forceful activity. There's crushing, there's pressing. The other sweetness is brought out of it. Let's pray this prayer together in the song.